Chapter 13 of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Viado. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. Sidney Doble's Text. 1. Is there a preacher living? who has not, at some time or other, felt unutterably thankful that the New Testament contains the story of the dying thief? Sooner or later there comes to every minister the experience that, in George MacDonald's Malcolm, came to Mr. Graham the schoolmaster. The Marquis of Lossie is dying, and in dying is desperately anxious about the salvation of his soul. It seems to him that the situation is hopeless. It is too late. There's no time, he almost shrieks. No time, no time, no time. And Mr. Graham replies by reciting to his lordship the story of the thief upon the cross, that most blessed thief who stole the kingdom of heaven. It makes my heart swell to think of it, my lord says Mr. Graham. It is not too late. The Savior demands nothing of you which you are not able to perform. With your last breath you can cry to him, and he will hear you, as he heard the thief who was dying on the cross beside him. Lord, remember me, he cried, when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Savior answered, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It makes my heart swell to think of it. No cross-questioning of the poor fellow, no preaching to him. He just took him with him where he was going to make a man of him. Today, the Savior said, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today, exclaims a great French preacher, what promptitude! With me! What company! In paradise! What bliss! It makes my heart swell to think of it, says the schoolmaster. And he is by no means alone. This tragic but tender story has made its poignant appeal to men and women of every condition and of every age, to two classes of people, two classes that stand in striking contrast the one with the other. The story has particularly appealed. It has appealed on the one hand to those who, like the Marquis of Lossie, find themselves faced in their last hour by a most desperate extremity, and on the other, it has appealed to those whose very immunity from such deplorable conditions has tended to foster a reliance upon their own innocence and goodness. If ever a mortal was entitled to enter paradise by some door other than that by which the dying thief was admitted, it was the Countess of Huntingdon. The Countess spent all her years, all her strength, and all her fortune in doing good. Yet, when it came to preparing her soul for the immediate presence of her Savior, she found infinite comfort in the story that made Mr. Graham's heart swell with thankfulness. "'I have,' the Countess exclaimed on the last day of her life, "'I have no hope but that which inspired the dying thief at the side of my Lord. I must be saved in the same way, 
as freely and as fully, or not at all. And so the whole story is a study in black and white, a study in light and shade, a study in sharp and vivid contrasts. There is the contrast between the criminal guilt of the thief and the sacrificial innocence of the Savior. There is the contrast between the affecting penitence of the one felon and the callous indifference of the other. And there is the contrast between the two classes of people to whom the story has particularly appealed. In a casual kind of way, I have already instanced the Marquis of Lossie as a representative of the one class, and the Countess of Huntingdon as a representative of the other. Let me now call two other witnesses, one like the Countess of Huntingdon from history, and the other like the Marquis of Lossie from fiction. From history, as a type of the one class, I cite Sidney Doble. From fiction as a type of the other, I cite Tom Gibbons. 2. If ever a man wore the white flower of a blameless life, it was Sidney Doble. His life story is an idol of innocence. As soon as he was born, he was little angel face, and his delighted parents worshipping every trifle that those baby fingers touched, set themselves to guard their treasure from every contaminating influence. He never went to school, or college, or university. He was educated most carefully and most thoroughly by chosen tutors in the home. Mr. and Mrs. Doble trembled, lest, in contact with others, the slightest taint should sully the perfect purity of their boy's innocent mind. On every suitable occasion, the father would lead his boy to some quiet corner of the home, or to some lovely spot in the beautiful grounds, and would tell him the story of Jesus. And laying his hand on Sidney's head, and looking into his face, he invariably concluded the recital by saying how delightful it would be if another child should arise who would make it his supreme ambition to walk in the Savior's footsteps to live a holy, spotless, and unselfish life, and to serve his fellow-men every day by doing his heavenly Father's will. The mother was no less earnest. "'Oh, how precious he was in my eyes,' she says. "'Surely never were prayers more devoutly uttered than for him. Never child more sincerely devoted to God than was the treasure of my heart, my firstborn.' Their effort to fill their boy's heart with a wondering reverence and supreme affection for all high and holy things was crowned with remarkable success. He gloried in the fields and the woods. He was never so happy as when climbing the hills and exploring the valleys of the English countryside. He learned the lore of flowers and grasses and birds. His mind became steeped in the secrets of nature's most delicious solitudes. To the unbounded delight of his parents, he made the New Testament his constant companion, and exhibited for it an unmistakable and growing affection. He would take it with him on his rambles, read it in silence in the leafy depths of the forest, or seated among the cowslips on the banks of the stream. And then, on his return, 
he would carefully write out the passages that had most impressed him and note down the thoughts that had been suggested to his mind it was inevitable that a child so reared should be precocious old-fashioned abnormal moving so much in society of his seniors he matured quickly he talked as grown-up people talked and behaved pretty much as they do when he was ten a little girl of his own age visited the home and sydney fell violently in love with her five years afterwards their minds remaining steadfast the two became engaged and five years later still at the age of twenty they were married when in the full vigor of manhood he began to move among men he brought into the busy world the captivating innocence the simple faith and the sunny sweetness of temper that had characterized his childhood and all men capitulated to his charm he was a striking and attractive figure every way he would have made a model for a grecian sculptor people turned on the street to take a second glance at him he looked for all the world like some castilian knight who had magically escaped from a volume of romance he was tall muscular and athletic of graceful carriage and elastic stride reveling in the open air his complexion was sunburnt and weather-beaten whilst about his handsome face with its deep blue eyes there clustered a picturesque wealth of nut-brown hair his fine features gave an irresistible impression of massiveness and princeliness his whole appearance was arresting magnetic and imposing travel and intercourse with men swiftly broadened his mind and supplied in large measure the discipline that his severe isolation had denied him the brooding thoughts of his long and lonely hours found expression in poesy and as soon as his poems were published he had the world at his feet carlyle begged that he might be instantly supplied with every line that trickled from his magic pen he made many distinguished friendships and kept them to the end browning and tennyson mazzini and ruskin george macdonald and holman hunt hugh miller and sir james simpson thomas carlyle and charlotte bronte were all of his circle and in each case his friendship was highly prized and everywhere the thing that fascinated everybody was the exquisite beauty of his simplicity the bewitching charm of his unaffected innocence and the best of it was that in the days of his renown he clung with unswerving tenacity to the things that as a boy he had learned to cherish he still loved the green hills and the wooded valleys and he traveled thousands of miles to feast his eyes on europe's loveliest landscapes he still treasured his new testament and never moved without it as a child he said i learned the new testament by heart and i cannot unlearn the beauty of those sweet old saxon phrases which i have loved so long full of the light that never was on sea or shore the light of the holiest happiest and best of recollections i seem in using them 
to mingle a new element with earthly speech and relieve with their glory the dreary lifelessness of words his faith in the majestic simplicity of the everlasting gospel deepened and ripened with the years he could not understand how any man who had once realized the sweetness and power of the divine love could forsake the pure fountain of his first faith to me he wrote there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved i shall never believe that the faith once delivered to the saints has grown obsolete till i see another faith delivered by the same hand to replace it by god's help i will abide by christ till christ himself shall release me till the veil of the temple is rent i will worship there the veil of the temple was rent early he was only fifty one lovely summer's evening as his favorite rooks were winging their homeward way across the sky in front of his windows his last breath was quietly drawn the fading sunshine of a gorgeous august evening lay rich and deep upon the scene he loved so dearly the fading sunshine of a gorgeous august evening lay rich and deep upon the scene he loved so dearly the arms of his wife were round him and his hand was held by his mother a happy smile played about his lips the friends who gazed upon his face next day said that they had never seen anything so beautiful he is buried in a lovely garden the handsome granite cross erected by his wife which marks the spot in which he slumbers is surrounded on every hand by pleasant lawns evergreen shrubs sweet-smelling herbs well-kept flower-beds and all things fair and sweet the air is coral with the hum of insects and the songs of birds it is a fitting resting-place for one of the most charming and blameless englishmen sydney doble was as professor james would say a sky-blue soul with no cloud anywhere his path shone more and more unto the perfect day but what has all this to do with the story of the dying thief much in every way sydney doble knew his new testament from cover to cover he learned it by heart both in the original and in his native tongue and knowing the sacred volume through and through one text stood out from all the rest some years before he died he gave instructions that it was to be inscribed upon his coffin and it was for there on the coffin that was lowered into that garden grave was the dying thief's petition lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom to his fellow men sidney doble seemed to be the sweetest sunniest and most stainless soul that any of them had known yet when he passed into the presence of his lord he ranged himself with the thief on the cross and a sincerity that sprang from his sense of inmost need he made the malefactor's prayer his own i must be saved as the dying thief was saved or not at all 
i must be saved as the dying thief was saved or not at all exclaimed the countess of huntington on her deathbed and sydney doble was of precisely the same mind three by way of contrast we turn to tom gibbons tom gibbons is one of peter b kind's creations he is the worst of the three bad men in the three godfathers the three bad men have just raided the wickenburg national bank and are flying for their lives across the desert there were at first four of them but one was killed in the raid and one of the three survivors is wounded out in the desert the three fugitives come upon a wagon beside a waterhole the waterhole is dry and the owner of the wagon disappointed and alarmed has lost his life in the course of a hopeless search for water the dead man has left his young wife in the wagon and shortly after the arrival of the three bad men a baby is born the three desperadoes pity the poor young mother but they cannot help her and she dies but in dying she asks their names makes them the godfathers of her baby and solemnly commits him to their charge they resolve that at any sacrifice they will save the baby's life as soon as the mother is dead it occurs to them that she must have made some provision for the child and they search the wagon they find all that they need and a bible then they set out to fulfill their vow how can it be done how can the baby be carried across the desert and committed to some woman's arms tom gibbons the worst bad man feels that he can do a little but he cannot hope to get the baby safely to civilization bill kearney the wounded bad man feels the same then it occurs to these two that if for a while they do all that they can to save bob sangster the youngest bad man he may be able to carry the baby to safety after they have fallen bob sangster is little more than a boy the bank raid was his first adventure of the kind the two old hands resolved to nurse his strength for the final endeavor the wounded bad man carries the baby as far as he can but a time comes when he sinks in the desert closes his eyes and makes it clear that he will never stagger to his feet again he asks for the bible the youngest bad man gets it and reads to him he selects the story of the dying thief and he said unto jesus lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom and jesus said unto him verily i say unto thee to-day thou shalt be with me in paradise that'll do bob exclaims the dying man and shortly after they hear him murmuring to himself the prayers his mother taught him and when he passes his mind is still pondering the passage he had just heard read don't let my godson die between two thieves he says and adds mr kine some time during the night the angels came and led bill kearney into paradise paradise 
thou shalt be with me in paradise. The worst bad man, Tom Gibbons, carries the baby as long as he can struggle on. Then he too sinks upon the sand, and, in the awful delirium of death, he cries again and again, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And perhaps, says Mr. Kine, perhaps there came back to him a message that only the worst bad man could understand, the message of hope eternal sounding down the ages. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And from his comrade's arms, the youngest bad man takes the baby, for whom one good woman and two bad men have died, and after a desperate struggle, carries him to safety. 4. It makes my heart swell to think of it, my lord, says Mr. Graham, as he tells the dying Marquis the story of the dying thief. I must be saved as he was, or not at all, exclaims the aged Countess of Huntingdon. That'll do, that'll do, cry Mr. Kine's desperados as they listen to the touching record. Give me, prayed Copernicus upon his deathbed, give me that grace of repentance and of faith which was vouchsafed in his last hour to the thief upon the cross. I range myself beside him and make his prayer my own, says Sidney Doble. I wish his words inscribed upon my coffin as the cry of my own heart. For, he adds, to me there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And he, whoever he may be, who relies upon the mighty virtues of that name and learns to pray the malefactor's prayer, will never fail to hear within the secrecy of his soul the gracious and divine response. Thou shalt be with me, with me in paradise. End of chapter 13 Recording by Lisa Viado.